light. Please turn with me to Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beast of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. This is the very word of God. Well, when we left off our study in Ezekiel, we ended actually at chapter 32. So this morning, uh, that passage, of course, was from the 34th chapter. We're going to attempt, by the grace of God, to look at Ezekiel chapters 33 and 34. Um, now, in Ezekiel 33, 21, we have another one of Ezekiel's date notices. He gives us a specific time in which he uh, was the events that he's recording. And this time in Ezekiel 33, 21, uh, of course, points us back to what's going on in history we are in the 6th century B.C. The specific time Ezekiel 33, 21 talks about translates to uh, January 19th, 585 B.C. I think that that is amazing because the Bible is telling us about real history, like times and places, real events that have taken place. And the reason it does this is because the Bible tells a story of redemption. It tells a story of rescue. It tells a story of salvation. 
And that story of redemption and of rescue and of salvation is the story of the world. That's the Bible's claim. As we look through the books of history, we can trace the hand of God to bring about what the Bible calls his reign, his rule, his kingdom. This moment here, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us about every moment in history. It tells us some of the most dramatic, most significant moments of history, and we're looking at one right here. January 19th, 585 B.C., one of the most momentous events, moments in all of the history of the world because of its place in the history of redemption. Okay, what happened? This is the day that Ezekiel and his fellow exiles in Babylon have learned the awful news. Of course, this is an ancient world, so it took a few months for the news to get to them. The awful news is that Babylon, which was, had laid siege to Jerusalem, was successful. They overcame the city, destroyed it, burned the temple, the temple that Solomon had built, and the city of Jerusalem had fallen once and for all. Now, why does that matter? Why do you care about that? The reason is because this moment in history, and by the way, you can just Google uh, fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, and you'll see this isn't just something that's told in the Bible. This is established historical fact we're talking about, real moments of history. The reason that this story matters is because this is a specific, climactic, critical moment in all of redemptive history. We need to know why. We need to understand how the Bible works, what the story is that it's telling. God's promise all throughout the Bible to bring rescue, redemption, salvation to the world is being advanced right here at this moment in the 6th century B.C. Because God's promise to save his people is also his promise to restore his people to once again be a blessing to the world. God's promise to save his people is also his promise to restore his people to once again be a blessing to the world. In this moment in history, 6th century B.C., January 585, God is showing his faithfulness to his promise. His truthfulness to the world. And the reason is because when God acts in faithfulness, he is not just saving a people, he's restoring a people to once again be a blessing to the world. The faithfulness God shows is the faithfulness God wants of us, his people as well. So this morning, I want to speak to you about the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness required, faithfulness delivered, faithfulness secured. Faithfulness required, faithfulness delivered, and faithfulness secured. First, as we take a look here at Ezekiel chapter 33, I'd like to point out 
the faithfulness of Israel's God and why he expects, demands, requires his people to likewise be faithful. One curious thing about Ezekiel 33 is that what it says in the first nine verses, uh, you're skimming along there, sounds like territory that we have been through before. The first nine verses of Ezekiel 33 sound an awful lot like what we were told back in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. God tells Ezekiel that he has made him to be a watchman for the house of Israel. With the responsibility, of course, as a watchman to warn the people of coming danger. We've heard all of this before. And so one question that we ask when you come to chapter 33 is, why is it repeated here? When we come to verse 10, we see that God is responding to something that Ezekiel's exiles have been saying. So you got to try to put yourself in their shoes, right? Sent away into Babylonia, obviously under the judgment of God, there seems to be this common complaint. Look at it, Ezekiel 33, verse 10. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. It will do no good at this point to come alongside those exiles and say, well, cheer up. Hey, at least you're alive. Yeah, you're in Babylon, but you're breathing. You're not dead. Things aren't so bad. (laughs) I mean, that's one way you could look at it. The problem is that what the exiles are saying here is not simply a complaint about how bad their circumstances are. Their complaint is they're coming to to grips with what the exile means. They understand something that, honestly, we Gentiles have a hard time understanding because we don't really know what to do with the Old Testament very well, but they knew their Old Testament well. And what they were beginning to finally understand, especially when the news came that Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon, what they're coming to understand is that this moment in history is exactly what God said would happen in Leviticus 26. So you don't need to turn there if you don't want to, but some of you are Bible nerds and you're flipping there now. Awesome. That's great. Um, Let me just tell you a couple things about Leviticus 26. In that chapter, we find the chapter begins with God's promised covenant blessings if the people will remain loyal to him. If you obey what I say, God says, here are the blessings you can expect to come. But then you get to verse 14, and there's a long list of covenant curses. Here's what's going to happen if you do not remain faithful to me, if you disobey me and do not walk in my ways. And part of those covenant curses include what Ezekiel's audience, his fellow exiles, are experiencing. Exile to other lands. And if that happens, God decreed in Leviticus 26, 38 to 39, if you I've turned there. Here's what it says. God decrees that in exile, they would perish among the nations. And 
they would, quote, rot away in your enemies' lands because of your iniquity and also because of the iniquities of your fathers, you will rot away like them. Now, do you hear the words? That's exactly the complaint in Ezekiel 33.10. So you've got a good study Bible, a reference Bible, hopefully next to Ezekiel 33.10, it's pointing you back to Leviticus 26, right? Because that's exactly what they're saying. When they say, our sins are upon us, we're rotting away, they are quoting from what they have understood, this is what God said would happen. The people are finally starting to see that this is the reality that they're in. They finally understood that what has happened is not just unfortunate circumstances, but rather the very specific promised covenant curse. And being under the covenant curse, perhaps it would have been better if they had just died in Jerusalem rather than rotting away in Babylonia. Now, God's response to that in verses 11 to 20, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. I'd like you to look back now here in Ezekiel 33 down to verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, the tenth month, fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me, Ezekiel said, uh, Ezekiel tells us, and said, the city has been struck down. Now, this news completes the bad news that was revealed to Ezekiel back when we left our study in chapter 24, when God told Ezekiel to make note of this day, the day when the king of Babylon began the siege of Jerusalem. That was Ezekiel 24, 1 and 2. What a tragic day it was as God claims, shockingly, surprisingly, that he was on the side of the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God, it seemed, had almost abandoned his people and his holy city. Oh, and by the way, on that specific day, you remember this in Ezekiel 24, Ezekiel's wife died, the delight of his eyes, and God shut his mouth, silenced him. He couldn't show any public emotion. All that weird, strange stuff that these prophets of Israel do, right? Which is why it makes it hard to read them. They're like, what in the world is going on here? Well, this is how prophecy works. It's all a prophetic sign. Because at the end of Ezekiel 24, God promised this, quote, As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, and also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report the news. On that day, your mouth will be opened to the fugitive, and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be a sign to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so that's, what we're, that's what's happening right here in chapter 33. Look at verse 22. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. So at the very moment, are you with me? At the very moment of Israel's Deepest national grief. I mean, you couldn't imagine something more painful than you're in exile, your city's gone, the temple's burned down. This is like the end of all hope. At that very moment, the prophet's mouth opens up. That is striking. 
at the very moment of Israel's deepest natural grief, at just the time when nothing else could make it more plain that God was done with them, at just that moment, when they say, well, then we might as well be done with God, at just that moment, the prophet speaks. So all this material in Ezekiel 33 is interesting partly just because of where it's found in the book of Ezekiel as a whole. I know we, we forgot this. This is the reason we stopped after chapter 32. So we took a break there. Um, because the 33rd chapter fits logically with chapter 24. Why then does it show up here? Why, why is Ezekiel 33, chapter 33, and not chapter 25? That's what I'm saying. Like, why was the book put together this way? And the answer, as we will see in the rest of our study of the book, is that this is a transitional chapter. It's a transitional moment in history. But it's a transition away from news of judgment and devastation, which is pretty much all we've heard in Ezekiel up to this point, to an enormous message of hope. As in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the pattern in Ezekiel is that in between messages of judgment against Israel and messages of salvation come those chapters prophesying against the foreign nations. In other words, at this moment in history, 6th century B.C., we've turned a corner in redemptive history. At the very moment when it seems like all hope is lost, that's precisely where hope is found. So now, go back to Ezekiel 33, verse 10. God sends his prophet to speak to the exiles who have lost all hope. They've come to see they're experiencing the covenant curse. Surely our transgressions, they say, our sins are upon us. We're rotting away because of them. How then can we live? <laughs> How can there be any hope when you're under the covenant curse? To be under the covenant curse, to be experiencing the wrath of God is death, not life. Or if you'd rather, it's alive, but alive only in hell. So we could understand the question that these exiles are asking. How can we live? We're under God's covenant curse. We're under his wrath. This means death, not life. And Ezekiel 33 comes as the answer to their question. Ezekiel himself is a watchman sounding the warning. And as long as you hear the warning, there's still the opportunity to be saved. A watchman sounds a warning because there's still a chance. And by the way, Leviticus 26 says that too. God's promise that his judgment would mean his people would rot away in exile is not how the chapter ends. It's not the final word. Right there in Leviticus 26, 40 to 45, comes this promise. But, God says, if they confess their iniquity, then, in the words of one commentator, the doors to a glorious future will be thrust open. So, what Ezekiel goes on to say in verses 12 to 20 is what Leviticus 26, 40 to 45 says. And it's all based on the fact that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And we saw this. This is one of the reasons we did the Song of Songs in between this section. 
it was partly to get the timing right, like Daryl said, for Easter Sunday. But it's also because some of you need to hear this today. The God of the Bible is not out to get anyone. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us. Get this right. Wrath is not one of God's attributes. Some of you need to get this straight in your theology. God has to be pushed, incited, as it were, to act in wrath. Now, make no mistake, what we see in verses 12 to 16 is that if anyone, whether you thought them to be righteous or wicked, transgresses God's holiness and his justice, those are his attributes, they will perish. But at the same time, if anyone, whether you thought them righteous or wicked, turns from his sin and does what is just and right, this is, this is in the Bible, by the way, he shall live. No, those verses do not contradict what you read in the New Testament because they do not have anything to do with a question of whether you are somehow earning or meriting your life before God. I mean, to even ask such a question is kind of ridiculous. Who was ever born because they earned it? Do you ever think that way? I certainly have never entertained such an idea. Life is a gift that God gives of his own free will. But what I do certainly think quite a bit about is the fact that whether I go on living another year or two or 20 just might have something to do with how faithful I am to live in accordance with good health practices. My doctor said your cholesterol is a little high. You might want to do these things in your diet. Faithfulness required. It's a question, though, has nothing to do about earning life. It has a, it's a question about trying to stave off death as long as I can. And if you want to live as long as possible, you just might need to show a little faithfulness to the way that God meant for life to be. Now, but of course, the problem that the Bible is focusing in on is the problem of, but isn't that the point? We're not very faithful, are we? I mean, I got that advice from my doctor. Part of it means I got to eat fish twice a week. Not happening. Not happening. So, the Bible says, what about that? What are we going to do about unfaithfulness? This is the reason Ezekiel's audience is in exile. It's the reason why, according to the Bible, we are all heading toward death. Is there any hope when we've all been unfaithful and find ourselves, like Ezekiel's fellow exiles, rotting away because of our transgressions and our sins? I mean, really. Like, the, like these exiles ask, 
how then can we live? Well, don't miss the first and most important answer to that question. The first thing God says in response to the question is, are you looking at it? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live. There's your answer. This, by the way, is God's way of taking an oath on his own name. If God lets everyone who is guilty of unfaithfulness perish under his wrath, under his covenant curse, God would take no pleasure. Are you with me? God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if God just lets everyone guilty of unfaithfulness, namely all of you and me, die, then God has no pleasure. And God says, I can't let that happen. So when the exiles are asking, well, we've been unfaithful. We begin to see this. We're rotting away. We are getting what we deserve. How then can we live? God says, as I live. By the life of I, God says. That is how you will live. God will see to it that the faithfulness he requires will also be delivered. God will deliver the faithfulness himself. So take a look at it in chapter 34. We've turned the corner. We're asking a question. How are we going to live? We're unfaithful. How can we live? And God says, I will see to it. And chapter 34 is the beginning of the new hope. Here we find, and we turn to chapter 34, this prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, Ezekiel has not used that term before. And he's only going to use it one other time outside of Ezekiel 34. So who are these shepherds? Clearly, they are those who have some kind of authority over the nation, over the people of Israel. Are they the elders of Israel that Ezekiel has referred to elsewhere in condemnatory ways? I don't think so. Because the term shepherd is customarily used in the ancient Near East to refer to a king. So it seems that Ezekiel 34 is a prophecy directed against Israel's long line of kings. You remember, you're getting to first and second kings in your Bible reading, and you're like, here's this long list. That's who we're talking about. And God holds them responsible for failing to carry out their responsibility to feed the sheep. He says here in chapter 34 that they've been failing to feed the sheep and choosing instead to feed themselves. And what this feeding means, it's obviously a metaphor, is specified in verse 4. It means strengthening the weak, healing the sick, putting bandages on the injured, bringing back to the fold those who have strayed, seeking out the lost. And it means not ruling over the sheep with unnecessary force and harshness. The result of the shepherd's failure to feed the sheep, God says in verse 5, is that the sheep have been scattered and have become food for all the wild beasts. In other words, while the sheep are culpable for their condition, that's chapter 33, 
God begins the message of hope by saying they got a problem with their shepherds. And that's part of the problem. So if God is going to rescue the sheep from their unfaithfulness to him, he's going to need to do something about their kings who have led them astray. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 10. God declares he is now against the shepherds of Israel. He will bring them to account because they failed to do their job, leaving his people, for all intents and purposes, without a shepherd at all. So when God says in verse 10 that he will rescue his sheep from the mouths of the shepherds, he's showing that the problem that he's out to solve, listen, the problem that God is out to solve in all of redemptive history is not just a lack of faithfulness in his people, but also a lack of leadership for his people. God's people need shepherds because they need to know what faithfulness to him looks like in every generation and in every situation. That's what spiritual leadership is all about. It's about leading the people of God forward in faithfulness to God in every generation and in every circumstance. So while all of God's people are responsible for acting in faithfulness, we all also need help to process and to know what faithfulness to God ought to look like so we can do it. You have questions about what faithfulness to God looks like in 2023? I do. We need a lot of biblical help. We need, we need leadership. That's what the shepherds are for. But if the, what happens if the shepherds are unfaithful? The whole flock suffers. And God says he will hold his shepherds accountable for it. But even still, God is not going to give up. He's not going to abandon his people. He's not going to give up on the flock. Look at verses 11 to 12. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. God will be faithful to his sheep, delivering them from their unfaithfulness to him, as well as from their unfaithful shepherds who have led them astray. God's not going to give up on his flock, on his sheep. And when we get to verse 15, we find these reassuring words from the Lord. Look at them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. What a promise to the exiles of Israel. What a promise to you and to me. Some of you have been hurt by unfaithful shepherds. Someone that you once trusted to point you 
to faithfulness was unfaithful themselves. So I'm here to tell you today that what God promises in Ezekiel 34, 15 to 16 is good news for you. Do not let the unfaithfulness of others derail you in your confidence in God's promises to be your shepherd. Are you hearing me? It grieves me how many times I have heard and I have seen God's people blown off course by unfaithful shepherds. Make no mistake, God will hold those shepherds accountable. But if that is you, do not let the unfaithfulness of human shepherds drive you away from the sheep. This happens countless times. I'm still a young pastor. You know that? Got some gray. But I'm still a young pastor, and I've heard it so many times, it makes me want to scream. Well, Here's my horrible story of what happened in the church. Some pastor that failed, and I'm done. Not joining the church again. I'm out. Don't do that. Do not let the unfaithfulness of human shepherds drive you away from the sheep, away from the flock of God, away from the church, away from the rest of God's people. Because that's where God's people must be. And that's where God will lead his people as a good shepherd. Your good shepherd does not lead you away from the flock of God. He leads you back to it. And if you're not going back to it, you're not listening to the good shepherd. Verse 16 says, he will bring back the strayed. Where is he going to bring them back to? Back to the flock. Yes, even that flock that the unfaithful shepherds have devoured. Now, I know that can be hard to believe if you've been hurt by unfaithful shepherds. Like, I I hear the stories, and I get it. It must have been hard for Ezekiel's audience to believe, too, don't you think? Living in exile under the curse of their own covenant unfaithfulness and without the help of faithful shepherds to lead them back, all they had left was the promise of God to bring restoration and justice. Here was Israel, the whole flock of God, heading toward extinction. And their fate was causing all sorts of problems in the flock. Look at verses 17 to 24. You could just see it here. You just skim through it. It describes the internal conflicts that further ravage the flock that's already been devastated by faithless shepherds. When sheep are without faithful shepherds, the leadership vacuum will be filled by someone. So God promised not only to deal with unfaithful shepherds, he would deal with the sheep as well. His promise in verses 20 to 24 is that he's going to straighten everything out. He cares too much. He's invested himself in his people and his flock. God's people need not only be delivered from the unfaithfulness of their shepherds, they need to be delivered from their own unfaithfulness too. 
And God promised to deliver the faithfulness they need right there as well. Now, honestly, it had to have been difficult to take in everything that God was here promising to his people in exile. The same God who had brought upon them the promised covenant curses is telling them that somehow he's going to turn it all around and once more bring the promised covenant blessings. How? (laughs) If his people are undeserving, how's God going to do it? If they've been so unfaithful, how will God's faithfulness not only deliver them, but also secure them? Secured. I mean, think of it. It's one thing for God to deliver his people by his own faithfulness to his sheep, but are we just in this vicious cycle? Remember the previous chapter? The wicked turn from their ways. They'll live if the righteous turn from their righteousness and commit injustice. They'll perish. Are we just in this vicious cycle where there's no security, no guarantee, no hope, no, no assurance? Is the faithfulness God requires and that God says he'll deliver, is it even possible? When we get to verse 23... Ezekiel 34, something interesting happens. It should catch your attention. Because God, who promised himself to be the shepherd of Israel, now says this. Take a look at it. It's a little puzzling. God says, the the same God who said, I myself will be the shepherd, he says, quote, he will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. God said, I will be the shepherd. And then he says, I'm going to set up one shepherd, my servant David. He will be their shepherd. It's a stunning prophecy, not because it promises some kind of resurrection or reincarnation of the long-deceased King David. If somebody tells you that, they are not understanding that this is a this reference to David is a long sta- is long standing in the prophetic tradition. It's not just Ezekiel who talks like this. In Israel's history, there is this vision, this promise of a single person who would embody the dynasty and at the same time occupy the throne himself. One person, look for him, one person who's going to embody the Davidic dynasty in himself, utter faithfulness, and sit on the throne. In other words, Israel, you got to hold on to this hope. This is, the th- this is what you're looking for. Looking f- look for the one to come, trusting God's promise that God is going to reverse the curse And bring about all of the promised blessings that God swore to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God established his covenant with David. Not only would Israel have their king again, but there would be one shepherd. That means to the exiles, that divided nation, it's been divided ever since the death of Solomon, is going to be put back together again with one shepherd, one king, 
So the message that God wanted Ezekiel to communicate to these exiles in Babylonia is that in spite of the collapse of the Davidic kings, in spite of the fall of the royal city, God had not forgotten his covenant with David. Ironically, if you're following along, ironically, the faithfulness of God on display at that very moment, as the people think they're rotting under the covenant curse, that very faithfulness of God has set the stage for them to trust in God's faithfulness to do something dramatic and new. You just, you go back to Israel, you go back and you get your temple rebuilt, and you kind of go back to the way it was before the Babylonian exile. That would be nice, but it's not dramatic. It's not totally new. So right here, God calls this new thing a covenant of peace. Do you see it? Are you looking at it? He's going to make a covenant of peace with his people. Now, you're going to see that phrase again in Ezekiel 37, where it's also described as an everlasting covenant. In other words, a peace that's not a vicious cycle. A peace that will come and endure forever never to be done away with. That's a covenant of peace. No more threat of a covenant curse. No question that, that, you, that, a, that you would be under God's wrath. Just can't happen. A time when the faithfulness that God requires will not only be delivered, but secured forever. Isaiah also spoke of the eternal covenant of peace in Isaiah 54, verse 10. Here's what it says. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And, and by the way, there's only one other place outside of Ezekiel and Isaiah, where the covenant of peace is mentioned. And it's in Numbers 25, 12. Where God gives the covenant of peace to Phineas and his descendants after him because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Now, we're not going to go there because you're going to be like, what in the world happened there? You can, you can read that later. But right, God says he's giving his covenant of peace to Phinehas and his descendants after him because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So covenant of peace be upon you. So what we know is that the covenant of peace then is inherently eternal. When it comes, when it is established, it can never be broken. No vicious cycle. The psalmist, by the way, reflecting on this, I just read this this week. The psalmist reflecting on this has a different way of saying it. In Psalm 106, verse 31, reflecting on God's covenant of peace with Phineas, the psalmist says this, to be in the covenant of peace means to have it, quote, counted as righteousness. You know the word justified. You're ahead of me, aren't you? 
this is exactly the claim that the New Testament is making. Jesus, the son of David, is the fulfillment of the promise of Ezekiel 34. He is the one shepherd that God promised to set up over his people. In Jesus, the covenant of peace has been inaugurated for Jesus, who was zealous, jealous for God's name and made atonement for the people of God. In Jesus, the covenant of peace has been made, just as it was for Phineas, for Christ and all of his descendants. That is, all who are united to him by faith. It was his own zeal for God that made atonement for all God's flock, the church which he obtained with his own blood. So don't you see, brothers and sisters, this is where you are in history. This is where you stand. The church is the people of God that God has now promised to bless. Indeed, as verse 26 says, they shall be showers of blessing. They will be showers of blessing. God's promise to save his people is also his promise to restore his people to once again be a blessing to the world. And if you have a little historical reflection, you will know it has come to pass. The past 2,000 years of human history testifies to the fact that the world has been utterly transformed, blessed by the power of Christ and his people that he has redeemed. But there's still more work to be done. As chapter 34 draws to a close, God says his people, his church, will know that he is the Lord their God with them. He is with us, and he has promised never to leave, never to forsake, never to abandon us forever. The curse can no longer fall on those who are under his covenant of peace. That's the assurance that is needed for us then to be, as verse 31 says, his sheep, human sheep of his pasture. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Assured of the eternal life that only he can give, you and I may find in Christ alone that we have been restored to our purpose, hearing his voice so that we might follow him, do his bidding in the world, and continue to do what the church has done for 2,000 years, be a blessing to the world. That's our calling by his grace. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you now, by your grace, to let us see ourselves like the exiles we're finally starting to see. Where do we stand in, the, in, in, in redemptive history? What kind of people are we? There can be no question because of the covenant of peace. There can be no question that we are ever under your covenant or under the terms of your wrath. There can be no question because Christ has taken it for us. 
He has atoned for us. The covenant of peace has been established. So what's left then is to believe your promise. To hear the voice of the true shepherd and to follow his lead. Now, good shepherd, wherever you want to lead us, sometimes, as many of my brothers and sisters know, it's through the valley of the shadow of death. But even there, we'll fear no evil because you're with us as you promised. The covenant curse can no longer come because we are under the covenant of peace. And you will lead us through those dark days to green pastures. Yes, you will. That's your promise. May we believe it and follow you wherever you lead, we pray in Jesus' name.